Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. It's uh, Kyle Stelter with the Wild Sheep Society of BC. We're here for Talk is Sheep, and this is number eight. How's it going, Steve? It's, it's going well, Kyle. How are you? Yeah, good, good. You getting some snow up there still, or what's going on in uh, George these days? <laughs> Mother Nature is bipolar, as you know. Uh, yesterday, it was about five degrees above. Today, it was minus 14 with the wind. So <laughs> we, we have a few inches of snow on the ground at... Normal for this time of year, but I'm sure we'll get walloped with winter quite soon. Yeah, no doubt. I seen you were out at the range the other day with uh, with your daughter and wife. You put some rain uh, downrange, uh, some rounds downrange, or what's yeah, it? oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, we got Kaylee uh, a little savage rascal a couple of years ago. Well, for her fourth birthday, so four years ago now already. And we've taught her for the last few years. She's come out hunting and fishing and trapping and shooting with me, but she's never been able to handle her own. So just teaching her the firearm safety type deal. And she's been good. And well, she's now an experienced sniper in her eyes. She's put about 10 shots down range. So she's ready to go hunting the big black bears in her eyes. So cool. it, was, it was a good time, man. Wife got a chance to chuck some lead down range. Well, copper down range. Cause that's what we're feeding her rifle. And she's, uh, She's, she's wanting to get out there as well. She's got her pal and her core. So looking forward to a, a nice spring. So good nice. You might, uh, you might not get to pull the trigger this year. Be, I'm, uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I, I love teaching the next ones to come up behind us. So nice. what about you? What's new in your world? Uh, same old, just uh, plug along. Lots of stuff on the wild sheep front. Lots uh, going on right now. So we had a board meeting two weekends ago and uh, that was super productive. So um yeah, we'll jump into all that. But I guess before we get started, um, you know, for our listeners, uh, there's a bit of a change here. Um, we've been talking to our members and listeners, and, and the one constant feedback we're hearing is they want a podcast style. Um, you know, they they want to listen to things. Uh, they don't want to be sitting in front of a computer. The wild sheep world, that's not who we are, right? <laughs> so uh, we're listening. So uh, Steve and I went out, we got some uh, some mics, and now uh, we're, we're going to convert uh, from episode eight onwards to a bot podcast style. So we'll still do the Zoom, we'll still record it, but we're going to have it uh, available on uh, on the major channels for for the podcast aspect of it. So that's coming down the pipes um, here shortly. So yeah, and we'll, we'll start doing these intros and talking a little bit more and then introducing our guests and jumping into things. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it actually. So. Yeah, it's, it's exciting news now. Like people don't have to sit in front of their computers and stare at our ugly mugs. They can listen to them instead. They, they, they climb up a mountain and uh, 
when you're stuck in inside your tent on a rainy day, foggy day, you can, you can listen to us instead of uh, being forced to take a book. So I, I'm excited for it. It's going to be some good, good, good times coming down the pipe for sure, as you said. Yeah. And one of the things we're just trying to work on the audio aspect, I know that sometimes with Zoom, we weren't quite getting it there and especially with the connection and stuff. So we're working really hard on the auto quality. So we'll get some feedback on that and see what we can do to improve it. But uh, yeah, I know the feedback's been great and just, you know, people have been reaching out saying, Hey, what about this? How about this? So let's keep that going too, guys. Anyone that has any thoughts they'd like to see, um, you know, as long as it's focused around conservation, wild sheep or any of the like, you know, it'd be great to have, uh, have guests on for sure. So. Oh, totally agree. It's it's been fun, but you, you you dodged away pretty quick from that board meeting. There's some pretty exciting news to come out of there, though. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, a couple things. The one big one is, uh, unfortunately, we had a de- decision to make around um, our fundraisers, and uh, we're going to move this to an online format for 2021. Uh, we know there's no way that the Northern's going to be pulled off in February with a in-person event, and um, and Kamloops as well in March. It's just the chances are are slim to nil. So we're planning around a virtual event. We've got some really cool things planned for that. A little bit up in the air right now. We haven't nailed down exactly what that looks like, but we do know that there's going to be a, a live online auction. Um, we're also going to do a silent auction online as well. Um, we'll have some guest speakers. Uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're planning a February event uh, through, for the Northern and then a separate one in March through around our Kamloops convention as well. Um, hopefully have some seminars there, a guest speaker. Uh, we'll do our raffle drawings. We've got some cool raffles lined up that are coming up. So yeah, it's really exciting. Definitely a bit of a drag that we're not going to be together, but that's coming. We're, whenever COVID dies or whatever it decides to do and we can get together, it's going to be epic for sure. So I'm really stoked about that for sure. Mm-hmm, for sure. That, that's the depressing part of it. But you're, you're back to the exciting news that came out of there, my friend. Yeah, well, there's tons of stuff. So there is. Um, today we're going to meet with um, with Silt and LP, their executive director, and we'll get to that shortly. But um, so um, we've we've got a bunch of stuff going on projects wise. Um, as we know, prior to um, earlier in the year, we've approved fifteen thousand dollars from the Wild Sheep Society of BC um, to go to this Silt project, which is a Granby land acquisition in the uh, in the Kootenays. Um, so collectively we raised $57,000 there with our, uh, our members. We had a, um, one of an anonymous member step up, um, made a $25,000 match. And so we made a total of $57,000 contribution in round two of Granby round one was 50, 50,000. So a combined $107,000 there. Um, and then projects wise, um, at our last board meeting, uh, we approved 46,000, $64,000 in spending for wild sheep projects across BC. And it's right across the whole gamut. So uh, region three, region four, region five, region six, seven, eight. Um, so just a, a really good um, broad cross section. And we've talked about that in our newsletter. Um, so that's, and it's on social as well on these great projects that we're involved in. So that was pretty, pretty freaking exciting to be honest with you. So. That's huge. More money on the ground, more, uh, more conservation in the air, so to speak, right? It's, it's, it's the good thing about the Granby, Granby project that I really like is it's not just sheep. It appeals to everybody. Like there's, there's everything from salamanders to uh, birds on there. It's a, it's a great range for bighorn sheep, but there wasn't even a, a Sarah listed badger that's been seen on that property and photographed by a, a member. And that, that's huge. So there's, there's so much more we're doing. And I, I love the expansion we're, we're taking there. 
Well, it's funny that this morning uh, my wife called up and she goes, are you guys doing a membership drive or something? And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, are you doing a membership drive? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, why? And she goes, well, can you sign me up? I'm like, what? I'm like, she's never said that before. I was like, I was kind of blown away. Right. And, um, you know, she goes, she goes, I love animals. I love wildlife. And she goes, you know, I'm not a sheep hunter, but she goes, um, she goes, I I feel like I got to make a difference. Um, and, uh, so, you know, sign me up. So I literally like within seven seconds, she was signed up (laughs) like member. Um, so, you know, it's pretty cool when we get non hunters, uh, obviously Mm. she lives and breathes wild sheep because of our house and, and what, what we do. And, um, so she's, she, you know, she believes in, in our mission too, but, uh, I thought it was pretty cool when we start getting people like that, that aren't, don't really identify as a hunter and mm-hmm. uh, want to be part of it. Cause, and they see the great work that we're doing. Right. So, you know, That's right. know she's being influenced on a daily basis, but uh, <laughs> still pretty cool right. to have her sign up. So, which kind of segues right into our membership drive. So uh, for our members, we have a cool membership uh, promotion going on right now. Some really cool stuff, $1,000 um, in gift certificates. I think Yeti, Sitka, Stone Glacier, you can pick one of those three and uh, spend up to a thousand bucks on uh, the winner will get a chance to do that. So get in for the draw. There's a whole bunch of different uh, options. If you just buy a one year, you obviously get less entries. If you step up to Monarch, you're gonna get several entries into that drawing. Um, and that's going to run right through until Kamloops in March. So um, pretty cool opportunity there. And uh, it's actually been pretty successful. We've seen uh, a pretty good number of people sign up. And I think we've had four or five life members sign up in the last couple of weeks. So it's it's pretty cool to get uh, this uh, excitement around conservation. So. And that's what it boils down to, right? Is, is It's not about us. It's about the ones that are continuing the legacy on from here. And things like this, the, these membership drives, they they're great for the society as a whole, but they also are great for conservation because we get people brought into uh, the, the conservation world that didn't, didn't really get involved too much before. Usually they're, they're new to it and they, they want to make a difference. They've seen something, they've heard something, they've talked to somebody out there and they said, I can make a difference. And that's, that's what I really, really like about these drives. They, they just spread that awareness and keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's a hats off to our members that have been part of the organization for years and even the new members. Um, but there's been people been driving this organization for literally decades that, you know, they're making that difference. And, and really, like our membership is our lifeblood. And that, I, I think personally, uh, I feel that we're one of the leading conservation organizations in British Columbia. And it's because of the dedication of our members. We have such a, a dedicated following of people that really care about conservation. They care about wild sheep. Um, and they just carry, care about wildlife in BC in general. So I, I feel just honored every day to be working, you know, certainly with my board and committee members, but uh, our membership and just dealing with them. Uh, it's just fantastic to see the support and, and the drive that our members have. So yeah, it's pretty the, cool. The passion's on another level with Wild Sheep. I've been in, involved with a bunch of different organizations around the province for years and just the, like I've never hunted sheep and I'm a Monarch member and it's it's just something about the the camaraderie that is around the table, so to speak with the members, as you say, there's, there's something there that is, is it's a passion for lack of a better term that is driving not so much the society, but the membership. And that's, that's huge. You nailed it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, Hey, we'll jump into our new episode here in a second, but um, just a reminder, our wild sheep raffles are on right now and they're really cool. We've got our desert sheep hunt, uh, grizzly bear hunt, and we have an antelope hunt, 
And then lastly, we have our Barney Sheep Camp, which that one is on fire. So don't, yeah, don't, don't bother entering that one. I'm going to win that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it's going to sell out too. Where, Absolutely, you know, it's, they all it's are. Incredible. The uh, the, the um, that we've we've created this. People look for that every year. That Barney Sheep Camp. And it's just amazing how well it's selling. So yeah, don't wait on those tickets. They're not going to be around. Uh, yeah, the, the draw's in March, but if you're waiting till March to get your tickets, you're you're going to be sadly sadly disappointed. And yeah. that that's uh, that's just a warning from here because we've seen it happen before, and it usually happens months out. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so hey, we're going to jump into our next episode here. We're just going to have uh, our guest on very shortly. Today we have L. Pete. He's the uh, executive director from uh, Silt, which is the Southern Interior Land Trust. Uh, we've partnered with Silt now for two years, uh, or two projects, I guess, over two years. And it's the Granby Project, which has set aside uh, land for wild sheep and, like you said, all these other species. Um, for perpetuity. So um, I'm not going to steal too much thunder, but the Wild Sheep Society and our members have committed $107,000 to this project. Um, unbelievable uh, support we've had from our membership, something that uh, is uh, going to leave a legacy for our you know future generations. So um, with that, we, uh, we're off to uh, episode number eight with Southern Interior Land Trust Executive Director, L. Pete. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, B. Hey, how's it going, Al? Oh, good. I'm just super stoked. Cool. Where where are you uh, where are you coming to us from? Are you in the uh, interior? Or are you in the uh, Kootenays? Where are you at? Oh, so I'm in my living room in uh, Penticton, British Columbia, and I've uh, been here for well, not in my living room, but I've been living in Penticton since 1981. Okay, cool. Um, so. Um, how does that work? So you're the executive director with with Silt. Um, is that a paid role? Are you volunteer? I know you got a volunteer board of directors, I believe. Is that uh, how does that work? Oh. Yeah. So so Silt is the Southern Interior Land Trust. Uh, it's a volunteer-run organization, but and I'm the only guy who draws any kind of pay off of it all. So it basically covers my expenses. We just I was on the board. In fact, I was a founding director of Silt in 1988, and. Um, uh, the, the agreement we have with the land trust now is that I provide executive director services through my consulting company, Barefoot Resources Limited. And, um, and so it is a paid role. Um, it's a minor contract really, but what we decided was that to be effective, Silt really needed to have somebody at the helm that could sort of guide these projects through to completion. Cool. Yeah, we're, we're kind of in the same situation with the society, the Wild Sheep Society BC. We, you know, there's only so much volunteer work to get done. And then at some point you need somebody to do the heavy lifting, right? It just, your volunteer work isn't going to cut it all the time. And, you know, it's, that still drives what we do. But, and I know working with you guys, I could see your volunteers behind the scenes toiling away. I just wasn't sure of, of your role in that and how you fit in. So how long have you been with Silt then? Like how long has your involvement been? Um, you were on the board before that. Have you been since the Oh, you said you were the founding director. So hey, founding 22 director. years. Wow. That's amazing. 
32, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> good math. <laughs> yeah, no, it goes back to 88. I was a young man. Um, uh, back then, I was uh, one of the regional wildlife biologists for the Ministry of Environment here in Penticton. And uh, uh, one of my roles was to try to encourage habitat acquisition. So at that time, we were really trying to bring the Nature Trust into the valley and getting them active here. And, um, and I was doing a lot of crown land securement as well. And I realized really early on that that, that is where the big payoff is. That's the stuff that will last forever and create a real legacy for wildlife in this province. And, um, and so I focused a lot of effort on that. And with a group of very dedicated um, Fish and Game Club members, mainly out of uh, the BC Wildlife Federation back then, um, we got together and uh, decided to take advantage of BCWF's annual conference that was happening in Penticton. And these guys were coming in and, and wanting to party. And so we thought, well, let's put on an auction and a dinner and raise some money to put money towards habitat acquisition and really the idea was to just generate seed money to try and encourage outfits like the nature trust to come in but we were quite successful and so uh, ultimately ended up creating a society of our own and uh, and uh, took a little different tact on it so i was a founding director of that with some other names that people would recognize in the conservation world uh, ron taylor mike edall uh, john holdstock the others as well wow oh, that's fantastic so now um, Silt has kind of a history of, I think a lot of your uh, property acquisitions from what I've seen, a lot of them were around waterfowl habitat and that sort of stuff too. Is this kind of a new foray into the, you know, the, the bigger game stuff? I know obviously Silt, uh, the, the purchase of Granby is not exclusively, you know, just wild sheep. Obviously there's tons of um, species that benefit, but is that kind of, is there a wheelhouse that you have for that or is it just wildlife in general? How does that work? So our focus really is on um, securing gems and jewels of wildlife habitat that act as stepping stones for animal movement through developed areas. So we're trying not to compete with the big conservancies like Nature Conservancy and the Nature Trust. But what we are looking at and filling a niche, I think a gap really, uh, uh, is um, those places that lie in between these bigger conservancies or bigger pieces of crown land that in their own right are really important to wildlife, uh, but are overlooked looked by, uh, by the bigger conservation players. Either they're too far removed from where they want to build these larger ecologically meaningful parcels of land, um, or um, they're just falling through the cracks and otherwise would go to land development. So was there a risk with the, the Granby project that, you know, I, I was involved a little bit with it on the periphery. Was there a risk that this was going to be developed, you know, what, what was kind of the, the driving factor here with this piece of land? I know it's quite close to Grand Forks, so it is near some development. Is, was that a concern or how did that look for you guys? There's some interesting history there, actually. That the, the land itself is part of uh, an old, uh, you know, um, first European settled ranch. I think it was part of the Morrissey Creek Ranch, they called it way back when. Uh, it was actually the Morrissey family. And, uh, and for the last number of decades, maybe 50, 60 years, it's been in the hands of a local ranching family in Grand Forks uh, who have used it pretty actively as, um, as rangeland for their livestock operation. And um, it, the Grand Forks grasslands are pretty interesting. I've been involved there since 81 when I first came to, the, uh, to work as the wildlife biologist here in the Okanagan. Um, 
underappreciated is how I would describe that, that grassland area. It's uh, an unusual, uh, on an ecosystem, I mean, it looks like every other grassland, but, <laughs> but on an ecosystem basis, it's classified quite a lot differently than, than a lot of the other grasslands in the province. It's part of an ecosystem that extends very slightly up into British Columbia, and mostly is in Washington State, uh, called the, the uh, South Okanagan Highlands. And, um, it's uh, it's just a name, but it describes um, a grassland type that is uh, mainly uh, fescue bunch grasses and blue bunch wheatgrass. And uh, the neat thing about it is that it it has many of the values that uh, you know the South Okanagan and Smokamine has, which is usually described as a biodiversity hotspot. And they're actually in in although it's a small area, they're actually in really good condition still. And so it, it, it is more than bighorn sheep, that property. It involves uh, at least six federally listed species at risk as well. And, and I got to know it first, not for sheep, interestingly enough, I got to know it first for mule deer uh, because it is fabulous spring range for mule deer. And there used to be huge herds of mule deer on that slope. And uh, I, I remember those very fondly. The sheep didn't come until about the mid 1980s. And I can tell you about that if you like. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear about it for sure. Okay, so um, it, this wasn't my project. Uh, sheep wasn't on my management table when I was uh, when at that time, and uh, it was uh, actually led by our wildlife section uh, lead at the time, a fellow named Bob Lincoln, and. Uh, Bob interacted with uh, somebody from Grand Forks, I, I don't recall who, who uh, presented a, a, a ram's head or horn sheaths at least um, from that area. And, um, and it began a discussion about a historic occurrence of bighorn sheep in the Boundary country. And Boundary was a gathering place for indigenous people for millennia before that, mainly because of the salmon in the Kettle River and Kettle Falls. Um, and the thought was is that uh, bighorn sheep were also part of um, their traditional use pattern there as well. And for whatever reason, sheep uh, were no longer present on that grassland. So uh, Bob actually conceived the idea along with uh, some uh, uh, locals in Grand Forks like uh, Barry Brando Sr., who was the guide outfitter there at the time. Um, they uh, came up with a plan to look at uh, transplanting sheep into uh, into the Grand Forks area and essentially re-establishing them. So as I recall, there was three transplants done. I, I was the guy, I was like I said, I was a young biologist. I was the guy who got to drive the truck. <laughs> and mm. uh, the, uh, the, uh, there was three transplants. There was a, um, two moves of sheep from Vaso, uh, from the Vaso Creek herd. So we had a corral trap at Vaso, and uh, so we bait, bait the sheep in with uh, alfalfa and pellets basically in the wintertime. Um, be a bit of a rodeo in the corral trap. We had dark shoots, so we pushed them into, and then we loaded them into a old gooseneck livestock trailer, and that's what I got to drive over. Uh, we did a release at, uh, up near Pass Creek, so that's in the North Forks, so the river that runs, uh, it actually drains south, but it's uh, north of Grand Forks. And, uh, and then two um, moves, as I recall, into the rock quarry. If people know the Grand Forks area, if you're just three or four kilometers east of the town of Grand Forks, there's a large rock quarry on the north side of the highway. And that was the release site in about 1985 for um, 20 to 30 animals. One group came from Basso, and the other was um, a research herd that was being held at the time at the Okanagan Game Farm that they were shutting down that research project. And so we moved those sheep over there as well. And, and that, those, between those three moves, that's turned now into a population that's, I think at its peak, went over 300 animals and is currently sitting between about 200 and 300 uh, sheep and some great rams.
Wow. Yeah, definitely a success story there for sure. So what are the, some of the other species you mentioned? There was a few other ones and I, you know, Steve and I were talking about that before you were on the, on the call here, but I know there's badger, um, mule deer, you mentioned what else is other species are, is in there? Uh, well, in terms of large animals, it's, it's mainly mule deer and white-tailed deer. And like I say, these are, are um, a fairly large open grass slope. Like, I think still owns now with your, your society's help about 350 acres of, uh, of the core of the grassland. On the other side of the mountain, basically, uh, just heading to the east, there's um, uh, Gilpin Grasslands Provincial Park. So there's a fair bit of protected area there. And then, uh, of course, the the bulk of the hill in between is uh, crown land. So the sheep have pretty good movement. Um, our our uh, land is gonna provide for them some really uh, core winter range. It's used year round, but really it's, it's uh, value is in winter range and is escape terrain. And, and there's some lambing that happens there. The mule deer and, uh, you know, in the last few decades, uh, more and more white-tailed deer are using those slopes uh, in the springtime with the green flush. And so you'll get these large herds of deer that come down and, and uh, make use of that new grass in the early spring. Uh, not really great winter forage for deer. It's not a lot of brush. It's, it really is mostly open. So, so it really is spring forage for them. There's elk that come in. There's the odd moose that wanders through. Um, the species at risk are really pretty interesting. There's, um, oh golly, uh, rattlesnakes, gopher snake, uh, racer. Um, there's critical habitat. So this is federally identified critical habitat for uh, spadefoot toad and tiger salamander. And, and very recently, one of your members actually uh, was visiting the area um, just a few tens of meters from the land that uh, we just purchased on the land that we bought earlier this year and uh, discovered a badger there. So that's uh, federally endangered in, uh, in Canada. Yeah, very cool. That's it is. Out. There would be more. There's actually a really intriguing sighting. So I'll put a shout out to anybody who's also a birder out there that wants to spend some time on that land. We had a really intriguing sighting and, and a very fuzzy photograph of what looked like or could be a sharp-tailed grouse. And so, yeah, sharp-tails yeah, sharp are... Mm -hmm. uh, are um, thought to be extirpated around here. So they're thought to be gone. And, um, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what else this bird could be. Now the habitat is fabulous for sharp-tailed grouse. So, uh, so it's quite possible that it could well be a, a group of sharpies on there, but um, we need somebody to go out there and actually get a good photo or, or somebody who knows what they're doing this to confirm it. <laughs> so this, this uh, properties, these properties are open to the public use still? You bet. Yeah, that's actually uh, uh, one of SILT's mandates. So as I mentioned earlier, SILT has its roots in the uh, hunting community. And, uh, and we've been um, true to that, I think, through the, through the 30 plus years of SILT's existence. Uh, the, um, our policy is to keep our lands open for, uh, for pu non-motorized public use, um, provided, uh, and that includes hunting, fishing, trapping, um, all the activities that you can think of that are wildlife related, wildlife viewing included, uh, just plain old nature appreciation, quiet enjoyment, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, but uh, they're kept open, uh, provided that it's uh, safe, legal, and uh, protects the integrity of the land. So we don't have any of our properties that are uh, restricted to public access, save a portion of one which doesn't have any public access to it. So it's accessed by an easement, and the easement right. is for silt mm -hmm. use. But, but other than that, it's all open. One of our properties at um, West of Carameas, um, a big reason we looked at purchasing that property actually was because it provided the only opportunity for public access to uh, to the goat bluffs on the north side of Highway 3. 
That's good to know. Yeah, we, uh, we, we, we fielded a lot of questions when we first started raising donations for this. Is, is this land still going to stay open for public use? So that, that's great to know. Uh, how many other properties do you guys own? So um, this kind of goes back to the history of Silt and how we got our start. Um, I mentioned that it, it's a volunteer and up until three years ago when we decided to go with a, a paid executive director, um, Silt was 100% volunteer and 100% of the money that came into Silt, uh, which has never been a large amount, but, but we're very effective because we have no overhead. <laughs> the 100% uh, um, of the money that comes into Silt actually went straight back into conservation. So it, everything, today even still, everything that comes into Silt goes to support um, land acquisition and habitat projects. Um, Silt in its beginning um, did not have the capacity to manage its own lands. So uh, there were a few instances where those lands were actually held uh, by Silt. And there were, although it's been many, many projects where Silt has contributed to habitat acquisitions or even outright bought property, um, a lot of them were actually turned over to other agencies for ownership and management. So um, we've contributed to properties that are owned by the Nature Trust. We purchased uh, 100 acres or so at the north end of Christina Lake that um, is part of a provincial park now. Um, there's a wetland in Kelowna that's a regional park. So um, that was uh, past board decisions. And I think in more recent years, we've really decided to concentrate on uh, acquiring and holding our own title to our lands. So to answer your question, we own outright six properties. So uh, those are lands that are titled to the Land Trust Society, um, Southern Interior Land Trust Society. And uh, five of those projects are managed by our society. One of them is under a lease to uh, the provincial government for management, and that is a wetland at uh, Coston, just by Karen Mias. Um, there was a lease established on that years and years ago when it was acquired, and, um, and the ministry is still, still managing that land. Awesome. Uh, cool. Al, so now with, with the silt process, there was two chunks of land. There's DL-492, which is the first pro, uh, project that we worked with you guys on to acquire. And then uh, the second parcel land, DL-493. So, you know, my experience with this is there was people driving this. There was people that were passionate about it, behind it, supporting it. Um, what, how, how come these two properties, how, you know, can you talk us through how you guys pick these properties and, and how this all came about, this whole evolution of the, the process of buying it. Sure. So, so the properties themselves, as I mentioned, are have always been really important to wildlife. They've also been, um, for a long time, been part of an operational ranch. <laughs> My dog has decided now is the time. <laughs> they uh, okay, it's good. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Um, the um, the properties have been part of an operational ranch and um, uh, unfortunately about um, 11 or 12 years ago um, one of the partners in that ranch was two brothers that operated it and one of the partners passed away and uh, so the ranch continued for a while but it left the ownership of the lands up in some question and um, the um, ultimately when the uh, ownership questions were answered uh, the family of the um, of the uh, brother that uh, passed um, his son actually is an active member of the Wildlife Association in Grand Forks and um, his vision was to see the land um, set aside for wildlife. Um, there are other conservation lands in that area. The Nature Trust actually, the very first purchases they ever made in British Columbia um, lie adjacent to uh, what you described as, as DL-492, the first piece that we acquired earlier this year. 
um, uh, there's another piece to the west of these. So it's really for, starting to form a really strong corridor of low elevation habitat there that are held for conservation. Um, the, uh, the son of the, um, of the former owner um, really wanted to see the wildlife values retained, but they had a strong vision that they didn't want to see um, cattle grazing on the properties. And, um, and because of the relationship that um, we've had with, um, you know, through my past involvement really as a regional wildlife biologist, they knew I was engaged with this land trust. And uh, so um, they approached me and to see whether Silt would be interested. And of course I jumped on that bandwagon uh, right away. So um, ultimately both properties um, are now acquired. They're both owned outright by the land trust. Uh, we've written a management statement that uh, describes our intentions that uh, they will not be used for livestock grazing. That, that's probably going to be a bit of a process to ensure that happens because in some respects it's up to us to keep the cows out. And, uh, and uh, they're not gonna be open for motorized use. Although they have a, had a very long history of use by ATVs and motorbikes. Um, and uh, that will need to be resolved yet. So I, I'm not expecting things to change overnight, but we're sure gonna work actively on it. So when you talk about the management aspect of things, um, wh what does that kind of look like, Al? Like, um, is, there, is there work to be done on the properties? Um, you know, we, you've actually, I think on 492, you actually earlier had some volunteer opportunities this past, this past fall. Um, is that correct or, or, or what does that look like moving forward in terms of looking after the land? You bet. And that's really one of the kind of exciting things about the new generation uh, in Grand Forks that are interested or were interested in seeing these lands conserved for wildlife. So, so um, it, it's a, I don't want to call it a marriage, but uh, there's a lot of cooperation happening between uh, the Brando family and the former owners, the Mimo family, uh, Walter Mimo's estate. And um, uh, the neat thing is, is that um, uh, uh, the Brandos and, uh, and uh, the Mimo's are actually um, uh, providing some ideas about how we can manage. And because they're local to the area, they're um, really, um, presenting some opportunities to have uh, sort of boots on the ground um, at all times, which is a great benefit to us because I'm about two and a half hours from there. So it can't respond if there's a problem, for example. There is management to be done. There's fencing that needs to be uh, built, rebuilt, really. Uh, there's old fences that need to be removed. There's the potential to do some um, habitat enhancement work on the grasslands. There's a couple of small old gravel pits that can be rehabilitated, one of which has a potential to develop some water, standing water in it. So, uh, so there's a potential wetland development of, of, or at least a pond development. Um, there's uh, a, a lot of work that can be done. And I'm really hoping that uh, while BC members will come out in force and provide their great ideas to a future management plan and uh, and provide uh, you know support and uh, and volunteer time to um, undertake some of this work on the ground to, to benefit. Well, that's fantastic and I think Al at this time I think it's really appropriate that on behalf of the Wild Sheep Society BC we're just very thankful that you uh, allowed us to participate in this. I know this is something our members are super passionate about and, um, you know, we were approached last year about this, about working with you guys. And, uh, uh, you know, Mike Schroeder first brought it to our board of directors. And, uh, you know, it's just such a fantastic project. So just a hats off to, to Silt, your, 
you as the executive director and your your leadership and your your directors for allowing us to participate. This has been a fantastic project, and uh, we're really excited about it. And one of the things I think as a board we discussed is the um, opportunity to get involved with the, the um, habitat work there and, and enhancing it. So setting the land aside for perpetuity is great. Uh, obviously, that's that's the big picture, but also you know having an opportunity to work with you guys hopefully to enhance it and and make it you know, great habitat for all these different species is, is really exciting, I think, for us. So, and then I just want to go on the record too, to our members, you know, the fantastic support. Um, we had one member step up with a contribution of $25,000. I think there were some pretty big contributors on this last one. So just fantastic support across the board from um, obviously our membership, but well beyond our membership as well to make this project come, come together. I think it's a real success story collaboration wise. Um, and I think that's one of the, like still, has kind of a history of that that they tend to work with a number of individuals and groups to make things come together. So can you talk a little bit about who, who we worked with on, on this project um, to make it happen? Um, oh, absolutely. And, and you, you, you said um, thanks for allowing WSSPC to be in on the project. There's none of that. You jumped on board and, uh, and have come through twice for, uh, for the land trust and for wildlife. So uh, my hat's off to, is to your society and your members. Uh, the, the demonstration of commitment to uh, wild sheep and wildlife there is fabulous. So good on you guys. Um, yeah, uh, we do have a history of collaboration. It's a tenant of our work um, and it always has been. Um, I, I've got a, there's a lot to acknowledge in these because um, there really was a, a strong commitment to collaboration in both these acquisitions. So uh, hopefully I won't forget anybody. I'll just try and run through them. So um, BC Conservation Foundation. So that's uh, BC Wildlife uh, Federation's Land for Wildlife um, uh, Committee has been uh, has been really generous in terms of supporting these acquisitions and it's not just the cost of the land by the way it's it there's my cost which is not large but it's um it's part of the project as well a lot of the funders that we approach um now the grant givers anyway are um expecting to see an endowment fund established as well so i'll talk about that again in a minute but um it, we have to actually raise money beyond what the land cost, the purchase price actually is. Um, to pull one of these projects together now is is probably in the order of 20 to 30 grand, at least hard cost, just even with our volunteer base. Um, so so there is some extra fundraising that has to happen beyond um, beyond the, um, the actual sales price. The uh, So BC Conservation Foundation um, supported both projects, uh, Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation and all the anglers, trappers, including all your members um, that support that foundation through their license fees each year um, stepped up for lot A on deal 493. They, um, they, uh, we didn't really need them in 492. So uh, we, we kept our powder dry for, uh, for this year with Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. Uh, Wild Sheep Society of BC, of course, uh, was right in there on both projects and is so much appreciated. Uh, really exciting addition this year was um, uh, Wild Sheep Foundation Alberta. So um, the WSFA fellas out there, um, uh, hats off to them for recognizing that wild sheep know no borders and uh, that uh, conserving land in BC for, for sheep and other wildlife benefits, uh, well, hunters across Canada, uh, people across Canada and North America for that matter. So, so uh, it was great to see some support come in there. And a, and a big mover in generating that support in WSFA was, uh, was Tom Foss. And uh, Tom 
and Jennifer um, through their Kaiser Foss Foundation were uh, very, very uh, generous supporters of uh, this latest project and really uh, were a catalyst through their um, uh, uh, matching um, funds, donations the, to, um, to generate um, pretty rapidly uh, generate cash for, uh, for the land purchase. Um, who've I missed? There were a new number of other individual donors. Um, we had some support from the Government of Canada through their Natural Heritage Conservation Program, uh, which was a small grant to our trust to um, help us cover co closing costs. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, I think uh, oh yes, of course, Barry Brando family. <laughs> they, they, in the first year, they put up um, uh, uh, a really generous donation to get 492 moving. And, um, and a shout out also to the family of uh, Walter Nemo who made this whole thing possible by, uh, by having the vision in the first place and bringing it to our attention. And, um, and they were very supportive as well. So although they're, they're selling the property, um, they gave us a premium deal on the, uh, on the larger piece earlier this year and, uh, and fully supported us and, and helped us with a little uh, extra time and guidance to uh, get the 493 lot done as well. That's fantastic. So one thing um, I've, I've never completely understood, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this. So you guys have acquired this land. I know the intention is to have it sit there for perpetuity for, uh, you know, wildlife and, and to conserve the land for and the habitat of, the, of these animals. But how does that look? Like, what, does that now Silt owns it perpetually? And, and unless you guys sell it or, or something like that, what, how does that look moving forward? I, I just don't quite understand how that how that translates, I guess, um, if you could explain that a little bit to us, El. Oh, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, and so that, that's a question we get. It's a great question, and we get it quite often, actually. I mean, people are investing in these lands, um, their own resources, and they want to know that it's going to be secure. So uh, one advantage that, um, that SILT has um, is that because it's largely volunteer-based and because we focus on properties that don't have a lot of improvements on them, um, the, there's not a lot of um, operational cost associated with maintaining the properties that we hold. And we do try and focus on properties that don't have a lot of improvements, um, or we'll try and deal with those improvements. Um, our constitution requires us to hold the lands in perpetuity. Of course, nothing's forever. <laughs> and uh, um, we won't turn around, for example, and say, oh, we can make a great profit on that piece, let's sell it, right? Because we've committed to hold it for wildlife and we select these properties carefully for that, those values. So, uh, so they are wholly um, uh, secure from that perspective. In the event that the, uh, the land trust itself was to fail for some reason, and this is highly unlikely because, as I say, it's volunteer, it's, there's really no overhead cost, it could certainly go to sleep for a while and has done in the past, um, but uh, will rebound back when there's, uh, when there's ability to do so. Um, there's no taxes that get paid on the property. There's very little cost or to maintaining them. So, so the risk is very low. But in the in unlikely event that SILT was to fail and close its doors, then our constitution requires that our assets, including our properties, go to a like-minded organization. So um, that would in all likelihood be another conservancy that would be interested in taking on responsibility for those lands. Um, you, you're, well, I think I'm safe to say we'll never see these properties sold off for development or for some other use. They, they are there for wildlife and will remain that way. And, and, and they're for people to enjoy from a wildlife-related recreation point of view as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
So with regards to that, um, people want to come out, check it out. Um, what does that look like? They can just come out and, and go for a walk. It's, uh, is it posted? I know, you, you know, there's this issue with motor, motorized vehicles and, and you guys are doing a great job of trying to come up with a, a plan to, to tackle that, but somebody wants to come out there, they can just go for a hike on the property. Is that how it works? You bet. And you raise another important point. So, so right now we have a very brief habitat management statement, which just sort of indicated intentions leading up to acquisition of both these properties. And so that's on our website. Anybody can go and have a look at it anytime. If you visit um, uh, www.siltrust.ca, siltrust.ca, um, I look under both properties and currently under projects, you'll find a lot of information about both of the properties. Um, you can absolutely visit it anytime you want. There's no restrictions whatsoever, except that we ask you to park your car at the border and walk in. Um, there is some question about the road that runs across uh, DL-492, um, whether it is public or private. My personal feeling uh, and research indicates to me that it is owned by Silt and is private. And so our intention is to uh, look toward restricting motorized use on that lot entirely. Uh, the 493, the most recent acquisition, has a public road uh, running across it to the western boundary of 492. I know nobody follows this without a map in front of them. But, but basically there's a parking area at the edge of 492. You can park there, walk over both properties, all you like, there's absolutely no restrictions. So uh, the only thing is we ask you to park your motorized car uh, or motorbike, whatever, and not operate that on the land. Um, for the interim, there's gonna be people that will use the existing trails and road on, um, on especially on 492 because there's been a very long history of use for that that's been tolerated by the previous landowner and it's going to take um education and some outreach i think to change that but but it is all posted to non-motorized vehicles and um and we're working away at it so it's uh it'll be a long process oh and uh we are going to um uh, work on getting a more formal management plan done. It's a commitment we made to your society with the, your first round of funding for 492. Um, we uh, asked whether we could delay that uh, commitment because of this most recent acquisition. Um, currently, uh, we're hoping to have um, at least initial discussions with your group and other uh, interested bodies uh, on uh, ideas and uh, 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 ways to resolve some of these management issues that are on the properties um, over this coming winter. And, uh, and I'm hoping that WSSBC members will be completely engaged with that process. I, I think, yeah, I think we've got a lot of passionate people that are pretty keen on that sort of thing. And so on, with that same vein, do you see any, uh, like you mentioned a few volunteer opportunities coming up and the things that need to be done on the property. Do you envision something in the next year, uh, maybe uh, in the spring or this coming summer that, uh, Silt will offer opportunities uh, that people could come out and get involved in and do some habitat work or what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I sure hope so. So um, uh, I, I don't have anything definite planned. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the cleanup that we did on 492. So uh, just part of the, um, you, you know, some people in the community, I think, um, were under the impression the land was public land and we're using it as a bit of a dumping ground. So um, uh, uh, we had a, a volunteer day uh, doing litter cleanup and some uh, a little bit of um, 
uh, access road blockage and uh, some fencing to try and uh, get that under control. And largely it appears that that's done now, including um, installation of a sign up there that marks the property boundary. And uh, oh, by the way, if you want to visit the property, you want to look for Morrissey Creek Road just immediately east of Grand Forks. Drive up Morrissey Creek Road, it'll lead you right to it. It's very simple. It's a gravel road, but it's quite passable. And uh, 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 so you'll find the sign at the edge of 492. We will be doing a dedication this coming spring for um, the new property, and we'll be posting a sign on that. Haven't, haven't even planned it, but, uh, but we'll definitely work towards getting that done. Um, we don't have anything specific in mind for this coming, coming spring. I think uh, some of that stuff is going to shake out of the discussions that we'll have over the winter with uh, management planning. I would like to look fairly soon at a project that will look at removing derelict fencing and trying to rebuild some of the existing fencing that's there so that it's more effective at controlling the cattle that will come in from the adjacent private lands. And uh, we could sure use help with those projects for sure. Cool. Yeah, our members are super keen on that they're always uh bugging us for volunteer opportunities and we you know we've had some tough times with this year than with covid too right with the yeah. our sheep counts we've had to cancel them because of concerns over the local communities and stuff like that so we're i know our members are itching to to go and do that we're so fortunate because um you know uh, granby guide outfitters the brando family um Barry, Bear is now running the business, uh, Barry's son, but uh, Barry, um, you know, for the last number of decades has been uh, super passionate about uh, dealing with wildlife issues around the Grand Forks area and pretty much single-handedly built a, a wildlife exclusion fence along the north side of Highway 3 there, uh, east of Grand Forks. Uh, so he has a ton of fencing experience. And I know that, um, that both the Brandos have um, some ideas about uh, um, how to manage the cattle and um, and access on both properties, and um, and it's great to have them right there in the community to um, help coordinate any kind of activities that happen there. So I'm really looking forward to having um, WSSBC and its members come out and pound nails, drag wire, pick up posts, <laughs> all the fun stuff. <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't be too difficult to get a, a motley crew together to help out. No, you know, um, there's um, a young fellow named uh, Len Memel, who's the son of the former owner. He's um, uh, really um, good at uh, operating equipment. So they've already hatched out a plan to, uh, in fact, I think they've acquired a backhoe in the Brando family with the idea that, uh, that Len will operate it when it's needed. So we're either even starting to get together some volunteer equipment to be used up there so, and elsewhere. Fantastic, that's very it, cool. It is. So, uh, Al, for you, um, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you obviously a regional <laughs> biologist, uh, worked, um, done a ton of work for wildlife your entire life. Um, and you talked about silt being a hunter friendly, a, a hunter conservationist, uh, background type as well. Um, are, are you chasing sheep? Are you, uh, you got a sheep tag for, for that region out there? Or what, what's your story there with regards to, uh, to your background? Yeah, thanks. There's there's a question. <laughs> Not as much as I'd like. Let's put it yeah. that way. It's uh, well, um, uh, where to start with my background? Yeah, no, I've been engaged with wildlife management pretty much my whole well before my career started. Really, um, uh, when I was a teen, I was doing um, habitat enhancement projects for the salmon enhancement program on Vancouver Island, and and getting engaged with volunteer activities down there it was just always something that was part of my life. 
And, um, and uh, once I got it figured out that I wanted to be in wildlife management, I was extremely fortunate. I got um, hired by Fish and Wildlife Branch uh, provincially out of uh, the Lower Mainland initially, which introduced me to the Nature Trust and sort of got me into the land acquisition uh, field. And uh, uh, I've been super fortunate because my uh, career experience has been really broad. And I would describe myself as a, a generalist applied biologist. So I'm expert in nothing. And, uh, but I have a lot of experience in pretty much everything. And uh, it's, uh, it's proven to be um, really beneficial to me because as I sort of approach the end of my career, um, what I've been wanting to do is swing myself back into um, more applied uh, wildlife type work that is meaningful for the critters and meaningful for the environment overall. So you asked me if I'm a sheep hunter. You know, I've never hunted a sheep. I'm sorry to say to your group. But I've sure supported a lot of sheep hunts in my day. <laughs> Used to manage the Ashnola herd. Um, I had a lot to do with the Vaso herd as well when I was the regional wildlife biologist. Um, so uh, no stranger to sheep for sure. Just never saw uh, in myself at least much of a desire to, to hunt sheep. The, uh, I, I am a hunter, though in recent years um, I've had some uh, reasons not to hunt and I uh, I've uh, let that go a little, although I still have good intentions. Uh, basically, I had some eye damage. It just uh, it's frustrating for me to hunt now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, luckily, my family I think is still carrying it on. I have uh, I have a stepson who's a very avid hunter. He's taken both my my wife is also a wildlife biologist and. Uh, and uh, he's taken our uh, management interests and twisted it on its head to, uh, <laughs> there's another one now, <laughs> he's, he's taken, uh, not him, <laughs> but uh, uh, one of our sons has taken our wildlife management interest uh, in, a, in the guide outfitting direction and he's a very avid hunter. In fact, he, he uh, was just out um, uh, goat hunting and uh, sending me pictures of a great goat hunt that he just com successfully completed uh, in the snow, which uh, he described as uh, pretty hairy and scary. <laughs> so I don't know. It's all about those snow hunts I, or goats. I can relate to that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So what's next for you um, personally, Al? Do you, uh, do you see um, more of the the work on the silt end things, or are you still working for the government um, in, as a regional biologist, or what, what does that look like the next few years for yourself? Oh no, heck! I, I left the provincial government's uh, wildlife branch in um, uh, the mid '90s. Actually, I stopped being a wildlife biologist and switched into uh, become a habitat biologist. Although that's a subtle distinction, the um, I switched more into the forestry world when the former Forest Practices uh, Code came up and then um, left the Ministry of Environment altogether and um, uh, took a position as a manager of audits and investigations with the BC Forest Practices Board. So that was kind of like a Bush ombudsperson slash attorney general type position. And, um, and I mainly did uh, complaint investigations about forest practices, but it was great because I got kept, um, we had a lot of latitude in which um, complaints you take on. So I was able to keep my finger on the wildlife and uh, environmental side that way. Again, just super experience. Um, I actually run uh, with my wife. Um, uh, we have uh, Barefoot Resources Limited, which is uh, just a family-run uh, biology consulting company. Um, my wife's 
left the company actually. She's going back to work for another agency, but, uh, but I'm continuing to consult. So uh, SILT is one of the contracts that I operate where to provide executive direction services to SILT. And then I have other clients as well where I help a forestry company, for example, um, integrate wildlife habitat management into their forest practices. Um, and I do other things as well, do a little bit of work for the mining industry and, um, and other clients too. All wildlife related though, like I said, for me right now, it's all about um, uh, picking tasks that are uh, fun to do. And a lot of my work is actually generated by ourselves through grants. So we have a, a fairly large project where we're uh, doing shoreline assessments on some of the area lakes around the region, um, trying to help um, lakeshore property owners um, uh, take action to protect the health of the lakes on their own, as opposed to relying on government to do it. And so um, we essentially provide them with a free consulting service where uh, we'll come out assess the short we assess actually every parcel of land on the shoreline and then provide a personalized report to that property owner um, with some voluntary suggestions for things that they could do to actually help the lake and so it's just taking our knowledge and putting it in the hands of um, hands in the, of the uh, of the waterfront property owners my, my vision right now is to go back and um, help make things a little better for things that I could see were going a little off the rails over the last few decades here in the valley Cool. Fix, fix some wrongs. Cool. Well, we need more more people like that. So good on you for doing that. We appreciate Thank it. You. Sure. Thank you. Thank so, you. I'm gonna. Keep, I'll keep going until uh, till I can't. <laughs> that's fantastic. No, we we sure appreciate. It. So, what's on the horizon now for Silt? What does it look like? What's uh, and obviously not asking you to tell all your secrets, but kind of what what's what's up uh, coming up for you guys now. So the great thing about SILT is uh, we always have something in the wings and, and uh, it's really a matter of um, how much capacity we have to be able to make things happen. And uh, so there's no shortage of people out there that want to see property protected and habitat secured. Um, uh, landowners even, but certainly lots of good ideas about places to go. Um, SILT has um, a... Um, uh, a mandate to uh, focus on certain kinds of properties. So we are pretty selective about what we look at. And um, I'm, uh, we're not gonna jump straight back into another acquisition. Um, there's, at least not immediately, we haven't got anything to jump on right now. Um, there's opportunities to expand, I think, at Grand Forks over time, potentially. So there may even be more property there that could come available in time, which would be great to explore. Um, the um, nothing on the horizon at the moment though and um, for silt I think really um, uh, silt needs to get uh, uh, itself organized in terms of uh, now looking after the properties that we have so that we're um, producing the results we want to see, the conservation objectives we want to see on those lands. So taking uh, this piece of Grand Forks is a um, uh, it's not a little job. Um, we definitely have to sit back, um, do the thinking to define what we want those properties to be like uh, over the coming years and then how we're going to get to that stage. Um, it's easy to think, oh, well, let's go and build a fence. But when you've got a, 
you know, 350 acres of ground there and it's uh, open to Crown Range on one side and it's got rock bluffs in the middle of it and it's up against private land on, uh, on th uh, three sides. Um, it's, it's not a simple little task just to say, let's go start building fence. We, we got to think about where to put it, what it means, um, how it's going to affect the sheep and other wildlife and, um, and how it's going to be effective to meet what we need, which is um, to try and protect our land from, uh, from uh, livestock. Fantastic. Well, a uh, huge undertaking for sure. And uh, you guys have, uh, hats off to you, you've two major projects that you've moved forward in the last year here and uh, just super excited to be part of it. It's just fantastic to, to see this move forward and doing some great things for wildlife on the landscape for sure. You know, in a COVID pandemic year, it's pretty amazing to think that um, we can, not silt, I mean collectively, everyone that has uh, contributed time, effort, money, whatever to these projects, um, everybody's pulled together absolutely fabulously and um and hats off to everybody i think that uh to pull two projects like this together in a single year and especially in this year is uh, is pretty amazing so um it's not just me it's it's all of us and uh, uh i'm really just uh, the guy who shoves the paper so that's uh thank you that's all i can say just thank you yeah, and mutually back to you guys as well, your your directors for their leadership and their vision on this, and uh, and then just engaging with uh, these groups. You know, the, there's a lot of uh, groups working together here that traditionally have never done anything like this together. So yeah, it's super exciting for me as being part of the wild sheep family here, and I know our members are super passionate. I've talked to a number of our members that have stepped up, and they're they're super excited as well. So yeah, looking looking forward to more of this going down the road, and, and thank you so much for all you guys have done. So. I hope to see it. If you know a good ground piece of piece of private land that's a good sheep habitat, just uh, give me a call or send me an email. Uh, Southern Interior Land Trust is the Southern Interior. We're not just focused on Grand Forks. So, you know, there's uh, there's habitat up in the Thompson, I'm sure, that needs to be looked at and, uh, and opportunities to be had. Just need the ideas to get there. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Well, I want to appreciate you for taking the time today, El. And um, yeah, I think I've, you've covered a lot of my questions. Steve, you got anything left that you're thinking about? Uh, for no, it's, you, you pretty much nailed them. And when you didn't say it, Al went right into what I was going to ask. It was, it was great. I learned a lot. Thanks. Hey, it was completely my pleasure. Yeah, look forward to more of this. And uh, thanks again for your time today, El. And uh, all the best to, to Silt. And look forward to uh, more collaborative projects like this one in the future, for sure. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank